All right, folks, thanks for listening. It's time for Gray Matters starting now. Well, good evening and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly uh, current events and public affairs uh, political commentary program here. Jim Dwyer going a solo program tonight. So uh, towel off, take a seat, breathe deep. You've been moving your ass for half an hour. And now it's time to engage your gray matters. <clears throat> we are uh, going to sort of dedicate the program tonight to uh, the voices encapsulated in Studs Terkel's 1984 uh, epic of uh, American personal narrative, uh, The Good War. This is a series of interviews with uh, veterans munitions workers, uh, folks on the home front, folks uh, out on the fronts, the various fronts in which uh, America fought in the Second World War. And these are all interviews recorded at various stages of the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. So unlike uh, Senator John McCain proving yet again his propensity to uh, engage in... Uh, campaigning without his space helmet on, who's decided to celebrate Memorial Day by going off to speak to, uh, personally, unilaterally, uh, speak to uh, what will claim to be representatives of the anti-Assad forces in Syria. So uh, not content to memorialize the legacy of those soldiers already fallen, Senator McCain seems eager to uh, establish the next batch uh to be memorialized. Uh, I'm going to give voice to a couple of uh, figures in Studs Terkel's book here. The first one is a gentleman named Timuel Black, uh, who ended up as a school teacher in Chicago. Of course, Studs Terkel did his radio work and uh, much of his broadcasting. He did some public television as well out of Chicago. And uh, capturing the uh, minds and the voices, really, uh, with his... Uh, you know, sort of open, all are equals style of uh, discussion and interview. Just set the tape up, let it roll, and uh, let people tell their stories. Uh, even the illiterate can be articulate in their own way, of course, and everyone has a valid story to tell. This Studs Terkel has proven uh, time and time again. So Timuel Black uh, begins his narrative of a couple pages thusly. Uh, by the way, just for context, uh, Timuel Black, that's T-I-M-U-E-L, uh, is uh, African-American, and his story will reflect that, and of course the reflect the fact that the armed forces were segregated during the Second World War. Ironically, uh, we fought fascism and author authoritarianism uh, abroad and still had the vestiges of... Uh, such things in our own institutions. Anyway, uh, I'll let Timuel Black tell his story. And uh, this is what he has to say. <clears throat> in 1939, I was sitting in a friend's living room listening to some jazz music. We were kids working in a grocery store. I was about 17. News came over the radio that Poland had been invaded. I said to my friends, it won't be long before we're in that war. They weren't quite as serious. My awareness had come much earlier. I was fortunate to, uh, in having some excellent teachers in high school, do Sable. It was all black. I began to realize that things were going on in Europe not to my liking. 
I'd worked for a Polish Jewish family. They'd gone back to Poland, and when they returned, they were telling me about the ghettos and the camps. December 7 was my birthday. I was 21 in 1941, and we were celebrating. My good friend George was very patriotic. He says, let's have a drink. Here's to Christmas in Berlin and Easter in Tokyo. He joined up right away. I was drafted in 1943, right after the Chicago and Detroit riots. <clears throat> we had this influx of war workers, both white and black, from the South, especially in Detroit. The tensions continued to mount until they exploded. We weren't talking about integration. Should the blacks or whites have the Brewster homes? That was the new housing project in Detroit. Uh, there was no place for black young men who'd been ignored, left to the side. Suddenly they were soldiers, in a very segregated army, of course. My father said, what the hell are you going to fight in Europe for? The fight is here. You should be going up to Detroit. He was a militant kind of guy. He would have gone with me. We couldn't get to Detroit, though we had relatives there. The buses and trains were carefully screened. The roads were blocked. Right after that, they began to sweep the streets clean of all eligible young black people by the draft. They had just begun to let blacks in the Navy in menial positions. I went to Camp Custer in Michigan for induction and then to Camp Lee in Virginia. All officers were white. We had done well enough on the AGCT, the Army General Classification Test. We believed we should have been officers. If you scored over a certain level, you could apply to OCS. I took one of those tests, and I know I did well. We knew all our scores. Very often, our non-coms had access to those records, and we'd find out. We could look at the records and see we'd scored well on our first attempt. All black soldiers got was one attempt. Some of our superior officers had taken the exam two or three times. Can you imagine the kind of tension set up between the white guy who's given you the orders and the black guy who has to take those orders when both of them know the black guy has superior qualifications? Most black GIs were put in the quartermaster corps. I was. We handled supplies, food, clothing, equipage. In Europe, we handled ammunition, too. We were really stevedores. Many of those young blacks wanted to be in combat units. I went to Normandy with combat troops. We serviced them. Generally, they made illiterate blacks from the South the non-commissioned officers to be over us, who had more education. Most of us were from the North. Here you have a somewhat resentful southern black guy glad to have a chance to kick this arrogant northern city slicker around he laughs deep underneath those of us who came from new york chicago and detroit did consider ourselves a little better than our southern less well-educated brothers we did carry that attitude of howdiness we were shipped overseas on board blacks had their quarters and the whites had theirs we didn't associate with one another different mess halls different everything we zigzagged our way all across the Atlantic because of German subs. We stayed in Wales, getting ready for the invasion. Black soldiers and white soldiers could not go to the same town. The ordinary British were absolutely amazed looking at these two armies. I guess they hadn't thought about their two armies, too, the colonial and the regular. But they were chagrined by this racial situation, which they'd never seen. White soldiers would say, don't have anything to do with those niggers. This is uh, Timmy O. Black's words here. <clears throat> they have tales. They howl all night. All kinds of funny stories. Very often, if we got into fights, the British guys and gals would be on our side. Here he laughs. Blacks were given the least desirable towns to go to. Often some of our more aggressive young men would say, I'm going to the nice town. I'm not going to go to that crummy town. They'd have a conflict. We were fighting a war before we went to the real war. 
If a young black fellow, 18 years old, would get together with a British girl, say 16, that girl would be encouraged to say she was raped. We had a number of young black soldiers who were hanged. We had one in our outfit who was hanged. We're getting ready now for the main battle. We're taken down as close, uh, now close to Southampton in, a great, in great secrecy. Our outfit was originally assigned to go in D-Day, but they took another QM group. Our guys were disappointed, except me. I didn't want to do that. He laughs. Two days later, we went in. We went into Utah Beach. Omaha was the hot one, but Utah was hot enough for me. It was a weird experience. Young men crying for their mothers, wedding and defecating themselves, others telling jokes. Most of us were just solemn. I was thinking, boy, if I get through this, it'll never happen to me again. What happens when you finally get off this LST? All you know is that you wade into that beach. You hear the big guns. <clears throat> the Germans aimed at our supplies. We were direct targets. I'd been on 6 by 6 trucks many nights when the Luftwaffe were strafing us. We had good air cover, but it didn't feel good when they were dropping those small bombs and firing those machine guns at us. We lost a few fellows. We were responsible for keeping the German saboteurs from blowing up our ammunition dump. If they had gotten us, we would have been pushed right back into the beach. The Germans had dropped young fellas who lived in places like New York and Chicago and spoke perfect English. They could talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers and the White Sox. You couldn't distinguish them from Americans. You didn't know whether the white person was an American soldier or a German saboteur. They were really crack troops. They had to take all the white American soldiers off the streets at night and use the black soldiers to do patrol duty. If there was a white person on the street at night, we had orders to pick him up or shoot him. We were doing double duty. Keep the supplies moving and patrol at night. My whole outfit was decorated with the Croix de Guerre. We stayed in Normandy until Patton came through. We went from Normandy to Brittany and moved towards Paris. And we came there on this beautiful day. How can I describe it? Know how I know they'd retained hopes and dreams? They'd buried their jazz records of people like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and Coleman Hawkins. He laughs. They said, tries in a French accent, Monsieur, the music, le jazz. They hugged and embraced us. It was the feeling of acceptance. I seriously considered not returning to the United States. They respected something from my own culture so openly, jazz music. I said, God, what kind of craziness am I involved in? It was an eye-opening experience. <clears throat> we were in Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge. We were at one time feeding three million soldiers, the first, the third, the ninth, and the British seventh. We used German prisoners to do our loading. Some weren't bad, but there were a lot who were arrogant, who considered us inferior. Often white officers accepted their interpretation. It was frustrating. One time I had a bale of fatigues that had to be carried from one place to another. This German chap refused. I knew he was friendly with our lieutenant. He said, you can't tell me what to do. You're a black man. I insisted. He resisted. I put the bale on his back as he was at the top of the stairs, and I put my foot to his behind. He tumbled all the way down, and the bale followed him very quickly. I was reprimanded by the officers for mistreating a prisoner, but they never considered his mistreatment of me as his superior in this situation. Guys like me were constantly on the spot. On one end, some of my black brothers felt I was endangering them. They were getting away with things by sneaking around, and I wanted to do things because I was an American soldier and wanted fair treatment. On the other end, the officers resented what I did. It was very lonely. In one last shot, the Germans began to use the experimental buzz bombs. They were accurate. That's what made them so terrifying. You didn't know where they were going to wind up. 
He laughs. There was Axis Sally telling us all sorts of interesting stories on the radio. At the Bulge, we were under siege from Thanksgiving till Christmas of 44. The mail had been sidetracked. We had no idea what was happening in the world outside. We had no outside. Psychologically, it did something to me. I wrote a letter home. You've forsaken me. You don't write, and I'm going to die. Finally, my mother was able to get the Red Cross through to me. We're now up to 45. The Germans were getting ready to surrender en masse. Just thousands and thousands. Comrade, comrade. And that's when we came to Buchenwald. I think it was Buchenwald. You begin to approach, and the first thing you get is the stench. Everybody knows that's human stench. You begin to realize something terrible has happened. There's quietness. You get closer, and you begin to see what's happened to these creatures, and you get... I got more passionately angry than I guess I'd ever been. I said, let's kill all the sons of bitches. Kill all the goddamn Germans. Anyone who would do this to people, they're not worth living. On reflection, I know not all the Germans did this, but my feelings were, how could they let others do it? This was the clincher for me. If this could happen here, it could happen anywhere. It could happen to me. It could happen to black folk in America. I guess more than any single event, it was this sight that crystallized my determination to do as much as I could to bring about sanity in a very insane world. During the time I was in, I'd heard all sorts of anti-Semitic remarks from white Gentiles. <clears throat> They'd come up to me and say, Hitler was right about the Jews. I'd say, get away from me. I'm a quartermaster. Hell, I can cut off his goddamn food. <laughs> Some of the Germans I met said, well, it won't be long before the United States and the Soviet Union will be at each other. What kind of insanity is this? VE Day had now occurred. I was in Marseille. We were being processed for the invasion of Japan. I got word through Stars and Stripes that an instrument had been dropped on Japan such as boggled my mind. A city had been devastated with one instrument the size of a golf ball. Most of the soldiers were elated. I was saddened. I wish we had gone and taken our chances. I sensed a new world I had never dreamed of. I went back to my bunk and lay there. What does this mean? VJ Day was declared and we're on our journey back home. I still had a heavy heart. I'd considered seriously staying for a while in Europe, but my affection for my family was tugging at me. My father and my mother and I were very close. We're coming up the Hudson River. You could see the shore. The white soldiers up on deck said, There she is! They're talking about the Statue of Liberty. There's a great outburst. I'm down below and I'm saying, Hell, I'm not going up there. Damn that. All of a sudden, I found myself with tears, crying and saying the same thing they were saying. Glad to be home. Proud of my country, as irregular as it is determined that it could be better. Just happy that I had survived and buoyed up by the enthusiasm of the moment. I could no longer push my loyalty back, even with all the bitterness that I had. The words of Timuel Black, U.S. serviceman and uh, interview subject in Studs Terkel's compelling book, The Good War, as we uh, commemorate Memorial Day here on Gray Matters on WCBN. Well, another story uh, over the last few days that's related to uh, these sorts of issues. Uh, Obama spoke uh, to the National Defense University the other day, uh, talking about pivoting away from war, ratcheting down the level of a universal war on terror. Uh, it would be nice to be a country that's not at war eternally, wouldn't it, folks? Uh, I'm 50. Our nation's been at war for much of my life. Uh, this seems like a, <laughs> a noble goal, 
but yet there's already criticism saying, no, ratcheting down the universal aspect of a war on terror renders us vulnerable to the uh, enemies, which are everywhere. Well, I'm going to go now to uh, another subject from Studs Terkel's book, uh, and this one happens to be a high-ranking uh, official, Admiral Jean Larocque. Uh, a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy, director uh, at the uh, time of this book's uh, completion of the Center for Defense Information, uh, sort of a watchdog group that keeps an eye on Pentagon spending. And I'll just begin uh, Admiral LaRock's uh, contribution to uh, Studs Terkel's interview collection. Here he goes. In the summer of 41, I asked to be sent to Pearl Harbor. Pacific Fleet was there, and it sounded romantic. I was attached to the USS McDonough when the Japanese attacked. We got underway about 10 o'clock looking for the Japanese fleet. It's lucky we didn't find them. They probably would have sunk us. I spent the whole war in the Pacific, four years. First, I thought the U.S. Army Corps was accidentally bombing us. We were so proud, so vain, and so ignorant of Japanese capability. Never entered our consciousness that they'd have the temerity to attack us. We knew the Japanese didn't see well, especially at night. We knew this as a matter of fact. We knew they couldn't build weapons. They made crappy equipment. They just imitated us. All we had to do was get out there and sink them. Turns out they could see better than we could, and their torpedoes, unlike ours, worked. We thought they were little brown men, and we were the great big white men. We, they were of a lesser species. The Germans were well known as tremendous fighters and builders, whereas the Japanese would be a pushover. We used nuclear weapons on these little brown men. We talked about using them in Vietnam. We talked about using our military force to get our oil in the Middle East from a sort of dark-skinned people. I never hear about us using the military to get our oil from Canada. We still think we're a great super race. took a long time to realize how good these fellows were. We couldn't believe it. One time I was down on a South Pacific atoll that we'd captured. There are still a few Japanese ships in the harbor. We ran into two Japanese who'd hang themselves right in front of us rather than be captured. We hated them during the war. They were Japs. They were subhuman. I hated the boredom of four years in the Pacific, even though I had been in 13 battle engagements, had sunk a submarine, and was the first man ashore in the landing at Roy. In, those, in that four years, I thought, what a hell of a waste of a man's life. I lost a lot of friends. I had the task of telling my roommate's parents about our last days together. You lose limbs, sight, part of your life. For what? Old men send young men to war. Flags, banners, patriotic sayings. I stayed in the Navy because I believed the United States could really make the world safer democracy. I went around to high schools in uniform, telling the kids that I thought war was stupid, to ignore all this baloney that shows up in poetry and novels and movies about gallantry and heroism and beauty. I told them it's just a miserable, ugly business. After the war, we were the most powerful nation in the world. Our breadbasket was full. We enjoyed being the big shots. We were running the world. We were the only major country that wasn't devastated. France, Britain, Italy, Germany had all felt it. The Soviet Union, our big ally, was on its knees. 20 million dead. We are unique in the world, a nation of 30 million war veterans. We're the only country in the world that's been fighting a war since 1940. Count the wars. Korea, Vietnam, count the years. We have built up in our body politic a group of old men who look upon military service as a noble adventure. It was the big excitement of their lives, and they'd like to see young people come along and share that excitement. We are unique. We've always gone somewhere else to fight our wars, so 
we've not really learned about its horror. 70% of our military budget is to fight somewhere else. We've institutionalized militarism. This came out of World War II. In 1947, we passed the National Security Act. You can't find that term, national security, in any literature before that year. It created the Department of Defense. Up till that time, when you appropriated money for the War Department, you knew it was for war and you could see it clearly. Now it's for the Department of Defense. Everybody's for defense. Otherwise, you're considered unpatriotic. So there's absolutely no limit to the money you must give to it. So they've captured all the Christians, the right of self-defense. Even the just war thing can be wrapped into it. We never had a Joint Chiefs of Staff before. In World War II, there was a loose coalition, but there was no institution. It gave us the National Security Council. It gave us the CIA that is able to spy on you and me this very moment. For the first time in the history of man, a country had divided up the world into military districts. No nation in the world has done anything before, uh, has done that before, or has done it since. They have a military solution for everything that happens in their area. They write up contingency plans, a euphemism for war plans. General Bernie Rogers has intelligence, has logistics, has airplanes, has people, has an international staff. There is not one U.S. ambassador in Europe who makes any significant move without checking with Bernie Rogers. He's the most important man in Europe, and he has tenure. You can't fire him. Our military runs foreign policy. The State Department simply goes around and tidies up the messes the military makes. The State Department has become the lackey of the Pentagon. Before World War II, this never happened. You had a War Department. You had a Navy Department. Only if there was a war did they step up front. The ultimate control was civilian. World War II changed all this. I don't think I've changed. I was a good ship captain. I was tough. I worked like the devil to see that my ship and my men were the best. I love the sea, and I still do. I think the United States has changed. It got away from the idea of trying to settle differences by peaceful means. Since World War II, we began to use military force to get what we wanted in the world. That's what military is all about. Not long ago, the Pentagon proudly announced that the U.S. had used military force 215 times to achieve its international goals since World War II. The Pentagon likes that. Military force to carry out national will. Of course, there are nuclear weapons now. Nuclear weapons have become the conventional weapons. We seriously considered using them in Vietnam. I was in the Pentagon myself trying to decide what targets we could use. We explored every way we could to win that war, believe me. We just couldn't find a good enough target. We were not concerned about the opprobrium attached to the use of nuclear weapons. I was in Vietnam. I saw the senseless waste of human beings. I saw this bunch of Marines come off this air-conditioned ship. Nothing was too good for our sailors, soldiers, and Marines. We send them ashore as gung-ho, 19-year-old, husky, nice-looking kids and bring them back in black rubber body bags. There are a few little pieces left over, some entrails and limbs that don't fit in the bags, and you take a fire hose and you hose down the deck and push that stuff over the side. I myself volunteered to go to Vietnam and fight. I didn't question whether it was in the nation's interest. I was a professional naval officer, and there was a war. I hope as we get older, we get smarter. You could argue World War II had to be fought. Hitler had to be stopped. Unfortunately, 
we translate it unchanged to the situation today. I met some Russians during World War II, officers from ships. They looked to me like human beings. I had been burned before, having been taught to hate the Japanese with such fervor. I saw no good reason at that point to hate the Russians, who I knew had fought valiantly in World War II. I think they want to be accepted as a world power and perhaps spread their hegemony around the world. I think we have to compete with communism wherever it appears. Our mistake is trying to stem it with guns. It alienates the very people we're trying to win over. The Russians really have influence only in the buffer areas around their country. They've been a flop in other countries. Yet the Russian bear determines just about everything we do. I wonder how much of my whole life and my generation has been influenced to hate the Russians, even when I didn't know where it was. I remember a Tom Swift book when I was 13, Beware the Russian Bear. World War II has warped our view of how we look at things today. We see things in terms of that war, which, in a sense, was a good war. But the twisted memory of it encourages the men of my generation to be willing, almost eager, to use military force anywhere in the world. For about 20 years after the war, I couldn't look at any film on World War II. It brought back memories that I didn't want to keep around. I hated to see how they glorified war. In all those films, people get blown up with their clothes and fall gracefully to the ground. You don't see anybody being blown apart. You don't see arms and legs and mutilated bodies. You see only an antiseptic, clean, neat way to die gloriously. I hate it when they say, he gave his life for his country. Nobody gives their life for anything. We steal the lives of these kids. We take it away from them. They don't die for the honor and glory of their country. We kill them. I went to a church in Champaign, Illinois about three weeks ago. There's a plaque in front near the altar. In honor of the men who died, were wounded, and served in World War II. The left-hand side says, for God. The right-hand side says, for country. We've made war a religious act. Somewhere in the Bible, it says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God those that are God's. What happened to that? Well, those are the words of retired Admiral Jean LaRocque. And I'll add that uh, the opinions expressed on Gray Matters today are those of two of our veterans, and uh, not myself, although I certainly share uh, with their sentiments, as I suspect many listeners do as well. Uh, these are merely two of dozens of voices uh, who still speak prolifically, uh, loudly, and uh, most articulately within the confines of this simple volume of pages, uh, a series of interviews conducted by the great Studs Terkel, sort of a broadcasting patron saint for many of us down here at WCBN. Uh, and of course, as the voices of this generation are dimmed by the passage of time, uh, the significance and importance of recalling what they have to say uh, becomes even more important. Uh, especially when the good Senator McCain is, seems in such a mad rush to uh, embody exactly what Admiral LaRock was just talking about. These crazy old guys who go off 
eager and excited uh, to start spreading the old lie, pro patria moria, dulce et decorum est. There's about two minutes left in the program today on Gray Matters. You want to stick around for Yazoo City Calling coming up next, a fine program of down-home blues stylings. Uh, And this is good music for this weather as well, kind of a somber uh, day weather-wise. But that's, I suppose, not unfitting to the memorial aspect of the day. Nonetheless, I hope that all listeners have enjoyed a restful uh, weekend. And... Join me again next week on Gray Matters for another look at events and politics and how they can join with our culture to make the history that we see unfolding before us. As our wolf is often fond of saying, you're soaking in it. And we're still soaking in the 20th century. Our toes still linger in that fetid bowl. <laughs> Uh, from which most of us uh, listening right now were were born. Thanks uh, to Andrew also for engineering tonight. And uh, stick around to uh, WCBN throughout the evening for all your listening pleasures. Uh, My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll see you all later. Thanks for listening. What station am I listening to? WCBN. What station plays the least music and the most noise? WCBN. FM and Arbor.
alert, yes, put on your mask, adjust it correctly and hurry up fast. Drop, there's a rocket for the bicycle ride, down, hug the ground, close you can, don't stand. Creep and crawl, follow me, that's all. Come on, go do it! Hey!